0: open your Bible. We're going to have this on the screen as well. And then would you stand as we honor God's word? We're going to be in Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. Church, hear the word of the Lord. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union and what was the God, and what was the one God seeking godly offspring so guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth for the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord. The God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. So, just for some context here, we're going to be talking about marriage this morning. We're going to be talking about uh we're going to be talking about being faithless in marriage to an extent. We're going to be talking about um, some uh, infidelity issues as is addressed here, uh, divorce. All of that will be covered really in the next 30 or so minutes. But I think it's important to kind of give some context as to why we're here, right? In Malachi, how, do, how do, this is the last book in the Old Testament, how... Did he choose to, to go there in what would be the final words for 400 or so years? Let's give some context here, though, because we need to remember how all this started back in Malachi chapter 1. Um, God, in his kindness and love for Israel, he, he looks in on, on how they were operating at this particular point in history. Um. And he sees that like once, what once mattered to them no, just simply no longer matters to them. What they once cared about, they don't care about any longer. That they have lost their love for him and they're actually taking issue with him. Like they have, they have beef with God. They don't believe he has loved them, so they question, how have you loved us? And so he shows them how he has loved them. They don't believe they have despised his name, and so they go, like, oh, how have we despised your name? And he shows them how they have despised his name, by the priests offering polluted um, sacrifices at the altar. He, he shows them. So they ask a question, and then he shows them how they have done what they're asking. So if anything at this point, it's been, it's been the pride and the arrogance of man, and then the patience of God, and God just coming alongside them and saying, return to me because I will not be dishonored. In fact, I will be feared, he says, I will be worshipped among the nations, is the language that he uses. He essentially is saying, this is not an acceptable way for you to live. Make sense? He rebukes the priests for bringing sick and lame sacrifices, which to him was just simply an indication that... He wasn't worth it to them. God says the issue isn't like me requiring the best. It's that that you just simply want to give me your worst. That's the the big problem he has there. And so that's sort of chapter 1 and chapter 2 up to verse 9. And then we sort of see a pivot that gives emphasis to their faithlessness towards one another, most specifically in their marriages and then he gives them some hope. He gives them, he gives them a way out. He gives them a better way. Um, can I ask Luke, just to pause for a second, could you go into that um, side kitchen here and get me one of those little short, chubby bottles of water? Thanks, man. They're right in there. You'll find one. Thanks, buddy. I forgot to bring it in. Um, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So something we need to remember here, that... At the conclusion of this book, if you open your Bible and you, if you have a Bible in front of you, if you have your phone, you, you realize that there's going to be four, over 400 years of silence after these words. Thousand years of engagement between God and his people from Moses writing Genesis um, to Malachi and in God's redemptive plan, he chooses to hold off for more than 400 years before sending Jesus, the one true Messiah, the one whom the whole Old Testament points to, thanks, buddy, into the world, to, to send Jesus into the world to atone for the sins of all men. Yeah, I mean, that's fine. I could do it. Thanks, man. Um, Now, this doesn't mean that man's not going to sin once Jesus comes, of course, because we are on that side of history right now. And we look out into the world, and we look into our families, and we look into our own hearts and our own souls and go, okay, wh- what was what, what the point then of Jesus if he, if he didn't come to just kind of finish it all 2,000 years ago? What, what's going on here? But here's what we do know. We do know that 400 years of silence after Malachi's words here... Um, And some of his last words, some of God's last words, have to do with marriage. Have to do with marriage. Have to do with marital fidelity. Covenant keeping. Now, before we jump in, let me just kind of give you a few personal and pastoral comments. Firstly, um, it's important for us to recognize this, that every single person in this room knows someone or maybe has experienced divorce themselves. Um, Every person in this room has been affected somehow in some way by divorce. Would you agree? Most all of us likely know a believer who is currently in a marriage to an unbeliever. Some of those marriages are are working out maybe just fine for them. Um, And some of those marriages are really struggling in the way they parent their kids or just in how they operate so differently and so uniquely. But hear me in this. Anytime we have an opportunity to preach on marriage, we do so firstly by wrapping all of what we say in grace, mercy, forgiveness. We look to the way Jesus sat with people in their hurt. We look to the way Jesus beautifully balanced both grace and truth. As John wrote, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, the word being Jesus, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. And then it says, full of grace and truth. For those who have been on the infidelity side or the one who maybe even left, we look to the way Jesus sat with the woman at the well, listening to her story, taking care of her, and even in its correction of her, had mercy on her. And let me say that what you, and you you might actually hear this as, as being provocative and without context, I don't want you to hear me saying the wrong thing here, but God can be glorified in divorce. God can still be glorified in divorce. Romans 8 says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. Now here's the caveat, for those who love God, where there is a spirit of repentance, No repentance, no glory to God. Jesus came to redeem even that. That thing you never thought you would do, that place you never thought you would be, even that. And for some of us, you need to kind of make that known to someone else in your life who is going through it or who has gone through it, that there's grace for them even for that. And so as we move through this, here's what we're going to see. We're, we're going to see that God is faithful even when we are faithless. Now, with that in mind, it, it doesn't mean he just ignores or dismisses or looks away when people are operating in ways that are contrary to his intended purposes for their lives. And so in this text, we see three charges. This is kind of his response to, to, to the Israelites at this point who are operating in ways that were contrary to his intended purposes for their lives. There are three charges he gives, firstly and secondly, I'm going to put together here. And so I think we have a slide for him. You can just kind of pop one up, and then here in a minute, you can jump to the next one, because the first and second are sort of in one, because they overlap so much. Charge number one is, is faithless to one another? That's in verse 10. Uh, And he says, have we not all one father? And so there's this kind of collective plural kind of thing happening here. And then charge number two, you've been faithless to the Lord. You've profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, is what he says. So he, here's what Malachi is, is doing here with the first verse. He is setting up the verses to follow. He is reminding the Israelites that they were made by God and for God and, to are, and, and are to stick together as one unit. That's what he's doing. And that he desires that they only marry others who honor fear and follow him as well. Okay, that's, that's very clear here that he desires they only marry others who honor, fear, and follow him as well. Now, in a globally represented America that celebrates and welcomes ethnic diversity, it's, it's, it's hard for a non-believer especially to understand or see maybe how that's not racism or tribalism or something that lacks sort of the inclusivity that we are used to hearing about But in this day, every people group, every single people group had allegiances that were to nation and to religion. And that's even true today. Like religions encourage, all religions would encourage marrying within the same religion. No no religion would firstly opt that you find someone outside of that belief system to marry because they would just simply present all the challenges that are gonna come. And for the Israelites, God forbid marrying non-Jehovah following non-Israelite people for the purpose of preserving faith in him. For the purpose of preserving faith in him. And it all began with commitment to the nuclear family as that family represented commitment to the covenant Hebrew family, the family of God. It was to be a a real-world example, a real-world picture, an image of the covenant relationship that God has with his people. But if you know nothing about the story of Israel, you know that did not always happen, right? Or if you know something about the story of Israel, you just simply know that didn't always happen, correct? That they were not always faithful. They would often forge their own path and they would do their own thing and they would come up with their own ideas and they would worship false gods. That's the story of the Israelites. If you just read the Old Testament, it's so maddening and so frustrating because you're like, you're just—it's this, it's this cyclical sort of falling back into... Um, the, the worship of whatever else, something else other than God, typically idols. They would forge their own ways, and when they did, it didn't go well for them. As I was growing up, um, along with my siblings, we would often try to forge our own path, right? Parents in the room, you know that's the case for your kids. Um, and if you've ever been a kid, you know that was the case for you that you try and kind of work your, your way forward without the direction, without the wisdom of your parents. It's actually sort of like a rite of passage to an extent that any good parent understands is going to happen, okay? There's kind of that leaving, leaving of, the, of, the, of the pack, right, of the tribe. And any good parent in those moments, they're trying to assess how to respond, knowing it's a part of growing up and learning who you are as as an individual person with free will. And so as a parent, you're going, do do I respond in discipline? Do I respond in patience? Do I respond in anger? Do I respond in mercy? And it's gonna be different with kind of every situation. Because any good Christ-following parent understands this. They understand this, that God isn't done. God isn't done. He's not done. God isn't done. We will so quickly fall into frantic parent mode if we conclude, if we conclude that God is done. Like when you're and when you're when you're a first-time parent, especially, and you have like a three-year-old, and for the first time ever your three-year-old looks you in the eyes and says, like, mind your business or something like that, and you're just like What? And if you lose your mind about that and believe that God is done, you're going to be on the phone so quickly to a counselor. You're going to be Googling behavior therapy for three-year-olds because you've concluded God's done. God isn't done in those moments. And we need to remember this about God. We aren't him, and he isn't us, and he doesn't respond to humans the way humans respond to humans. Just because God uses anthropomorphic language, meaning to relate to people, to help us understand in our kind of finite minds, doesn't mean he is anthropo, meaning a humanoid. He is divine and perfect in his ways and in his wisdom. And so watch how he responds to their marrying of others who don't follow him. He takes them way back to their roots, like way back, like to the beginning, like to creation. Through Malachi, the Lord goes, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us, his people, his chosen, set-apart, holy people? Who is the us there? It's Judah. Because he then goes on to say, Judah has been faithless as a people by marrying non-God-fearing, non-Jehovah-following wives. He then says they have profaned the sanctuary of the Lord by doing this. The sanctuary of the Lord here is the people of God, for for they are a holy nation, a treasured possession, the holy seed, and they are to be called holy. So by marrying non-God-fearing, non-Jehovah-following spouses, they have profaned the holy nation. They have profaned the whole of the holy nation. Again, not racism, It had nothing to do with race. It had everything to do with preserving for himself a people who loved and followed and honored and walked and trusted and knew him and passed on the knowledge of him from generation after generation after generation. That was the sole purpose. And guess what God doesn't do here? Going back to how we respond. Guess what God doesn't do when he sees this is happening and he's been observing this for a long, long time. Guess what he does not do? He doesn't destroy them. He doesn't destroy them. God gets this reputation in the Old Testament of just being like this fiery, angry, full of wrath all the time. And his response here is so unbelievably patient, pointed and purposeful, but patient. And so you might be wondering here, are are these just like, like, um, like, who's doing this? Like just the young studs in the tribe who are just kind of running off with, the Moabites, or, like, who, who's actually doing this, okay? We might kind of be wondering that. Are they just young guys going off, um, or, or are others as well? We, we don't know exactly. Likely this is happening, yes, some of the younger men as well, but we, we do know this, that, um, that in Deuteronomy chapter 23, right, it kind of details out the, the fact that God for, forbid marrying outside of the tribe, right? But here's what we do know. We know that some of the men, and this is where it gets painful. This is where it gets hard. This is where it like hits, hits close to home with a lot of us in this room and kind of what, what we've experienced in, in our culture. Uh, we do know that some of the men who are, who are married to Israelite women were divorcing them and they were faithless to, to, to them for non-Hebrews. They were leaving their wives. That's what it teaches us. He turns to his third charge. Um, So you've dishonored the, the, the people of Israel, and you've dishonored me. How? How? By being faithless to the wife of your youth. So they were married. Third charge, faithless in marriage. Let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth, is what it says, So, track with this. This is important to see. The the real issue is the breaking of marital covenant. That's the real issue here. If you stayed married and stayed faithful to your wife, you wouldn't need to remarry, and you wouldn't need to remarry someone who doesn't follow Jehovah. The issue is this, and, and this is the issue at the heart of infidelity. I want you to hear this. And maybe you can apply it to your, your own experience. Um, before you lost your care for the covenant you have with your wife, you lost your care for the covenant God has with you. That's what he's saying. Before you lose your care for the covenant you have with your spouse, you, you lose the care that God ha- the, you, you lose the care for the covenant that God has with you. Because if you cared about God's covenant relationship with you, You would see the purpose of the covenant relationship with your spouse. You've lost your love for your wife, and you have lost your love for me, says God, because you have lost your care for covenant. And covenant is what keeps the love for God and wife alive. Can I tell you, just having been in vocational ministry since I was 23 years old, I'm 40 now. The number of broken marriages that I've observed happen and even walked with through the pain of it have been far too many, to say the least. But I can tell you every single one of them had at least one spouse that was simultaneously experiencing an existential crisis of faith. Asking questions like, I don't even know if I believe this stuff anymore. What has God done for me in this marriage? God wouldn't want me to stay in a loveless marriage. I don't care if God hates divorce. It's just too miserable for me. He'll forgive me. There's no way he could heal this marriage. It's it's far too gone. It's too broken. All of those would come out. All of them from at least one, oftentimes both, spouses. So that's a covenant. Let's talk about that for a second, because it's important. Antiquated word, kind of an old school word, it's important. Here's why. Tim Keller on the topic of covenant says this. So somebody says a covenant, that's kind of an archaic word. Could you give me a more up-to-date word, a more modern word? My answer is, let's say it together, church. No, no. I can't give you a more archaic or more modern word. Because it's not just a word, it's a category of thoughts. And there isn't any other word I know that conveys this category of thought. A covenant creates a relationship. It's a relationship far more loving and intimate than a a merely legal relationship. But it's also far more binding and enduring than merely an emotional relationship. A covenant creates a personal relationship which is more intimate and loving because it's legal. It's more loving because it's legal. Let me explain. In a consumer relationship, you relate to a vendor. And you have a relationship as long as the vendor is giving you a product at a good price, but you're always, always, always looking for an upgrade. And so what you say to your vendor is, we have a relationship, but you better keep adjusting to me because if you don't meet my needs, I'm out of here because my needs are more important than the relationship. We have a relationship, but my needs are more important. If I can get my needs met somewhere else, that's where I'll go. That's a vendor-consumer relationship, but a covenant relationship is exactly the opposite. A consumer relationship says you adjust to me or I'm out of here. A covenant relationship says I will adjust to you because I've made a promise and the relationship is more important than my needs. That's profoundly different and stands in contrast to what we are being sold and told and taught. My needs are less important than the sustenance of that relationship. Now, if two people get into a relationship, one as a consumer and one as a covenanter, that will be bad for the covenanter. That covenanter will be exploited. And if you get into a relationship, if you're not both covenanting, it's exploitative. But if both of you get into a relationship and say, we're done with the consumer relationship, We're in a covenant relationship. That is what it means to be married. Friends, God loves marriage, and God hates divorce because while marriage is about companionship and partnership and intimacy and sacrifice, Ultimately, it's to be a picture of the covenant relationship God has with his people. And when we diminish or even worse, destroy that, how else will the world see a picture of the relationship God desires to have with us? But this is how we operate as humans, right? We take good gifts, marriage, and we make them ultimate. And when we make them ultimate, they become bad because we worship the gift over the giver of the gift. And so with marriage, we have made it ultimate, and when we do, we make it into a God. And when our God isn't performing or giving us what we need, what do we do? We go find another God. We replace that God, we go find another spouse. But the covenant of marriage was never intended to replace the covenant we have with God, only to be a picture of it. The most important covenant in your life, Christian, is not the one you have with your spouse. It's the one you have with your God. Th- think, about, think about Adam and Eve. From the beginning, uh, they're over here committed to each other first, right? Over God. Apple, yum. Yeah, God said no. Oh, it's Okay. You told me it's okay, yum, let's go. And off to the races. Off we go, setting God to the side. And so when the covenant with God remains your aim, it relieves the pressure from the covenant that you have with your spouse to be everything to you. It's a value, but it's a value primarily in what it represents, not what it can do for you. Now, practically here, What kind of divorce do we see in Malachi chapter 2? This is important for us to note. We see the most brutal, painful, betraying divorce there is. This divorce we see is not the result of infidelity or chronic abuse or because an unbeliever believes, an unbeliever leaves a believer. Those are all addressed in the Bible. Matthew chapter 5, Luke chapter 16, and 1 Corinthians 7. The divorce we see here is this. That's why it's so painful. I found someone else. That's it. I found someone else. Someone better. This divorce leaves, in this context, the woman feeling cheap and used and unwanted. This divorce angers God because this divorce resembles the betrayal that he feels from his people when they dismiss his presence. When they divorce themselves from the relationship with him for something better. says, though she is your companion and your wife, You were one. And in your fidelity, in your commitment, in your promise, in your care for each other, you were making godly offspring who would know and walk with and fear God. And for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, God actually will not regard that man's weeping or tears, it says. He's not going to honor the man who comes to him, essentially because he won't view it as genuine. He will cover his garment in violence. It's a figure of speech that means this is going to define your character, brother. And I won't have it. And so let me, let me end, if that's what we see here, um, there's some hope. And let me just end with just two things. Firstly, You'll notice, not once, but two times in these six verses um, addressing faithlessness, God in his graciousness gives, gives hope. He gives an alternative. And that alternative is, is to guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Okay, so what does that look like? How, how does that work? In other words, the, the positive there is this. I want you to see this. Guard yourselves, and when you do, you will be faithful. Faithful. Guard yourselves, and when you do, you will be faithful. Um, anytime I hear the words guard yourself, my mind quickly goes to Psalm 11. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Here's how you could do this Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. So to guard yourself, see this, could mean to delight in God and the things that are in line with his word and his character. That's a way to guard yourself. So a few practical thoughts, Um, three or four. First, guard yourself. Here's how you do it you reject the myth of um, of the right person or the 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 one myth, okay? You reject the right person myth. That's a way to guard yourself. The right person myth says that there is a right person out there for you and good marriage is determined by finding that one person and if you don't find that person, you'll never be happy. It's a myth, it's a lie. Um, Tim Keller says, you always marry the wrong person. <laughs> it's like, wow, that's really hopeful. Um, he goes on. I'm not gonna just, that's it. <laughs> just, that's, he just leaves it there. Uh, you always marry the wrong person because you're a sinner, and they are a sinner, and they are not God. The best you can hope for in a marriage is less of a bad match. For you, since everyone ends up being a bad match, God's purpose in marriage is not to restore the missing part of your soul, but to teach you to become like Him, to love an annoying sinner like you. Secondly, here's another way to guard yourself. So don't buy into the myth of that one, of the one. Two would be just, uh, you guard yourself by simply being obedient, just by choosing to be obedient. Man, I, again, I there are several in my life right now uh, that are that are in in the throes of infidelity or just broken uh, marriages that are just on the brink and you could point to like the the week that he just woke up and was like I'm done with obedience. I don't care anymore. Simply commit to just being obedient. We don't Get divorced because we fall out of love with our spouse, but because we don't take seriously our obedience to Jesus. In Matthew 19, we read why Moses and Israel's civil law had allowed the provision of divorce. Here's what it says Because of your hardness of heart, because of your hardness, because of your lack of obedience, is what he says. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Our lack of obedience leads to hardening of hearts that kills a marriage. It is not the arguments or the intimacy issues or the way you cut your bagel or whatever it might be. The way you fold laundry that's not what kills a marriage. It's the hardened heart. Every time. Do you believe that Jesus' sacrifice and the power of the Holy Spirit can change your heart or the heart of the person in your life who is telling you otherwise? I do. Third, we guard our spirit by considering others first. The typical pattern for someone considering divorce begins with a shift from unity, from us to I. 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 You can read 1 Corinthians 7, and Paul in it, he recognizes the benefits of marriage and staying together for others. So you guard your spirit by considering others. Men, women, you wake up every morning and go, This is. Marriage is benefiting others. I stay in it because I I don't believe in the myth of the one. I stay in it because I want to be obedient to Jesus, and I stay in it because it's good for others. Fourth and lastly, we guard ourselves by believing that Jesus is just simply better, and we don't just kind of drop that in there. We actually believe that. We, we, We guard ourselves by believing that Jesus is better, and here's why he is better. We're going to end with this. He's better, he's better because he gives favor even to the faithless. That's why I don't, he does. This takes us back to this idea of guarding yourselves in your spirit, do not be faithless two times. Notice this, notice how it does not say, and this is only for those of you who have stayed faithful. Faithful. Guard yourselves and stay fa- and, 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 and do not be faithless. Doesn't say that, does it? So, see, to assume that you are exempt or you are in the right, just because you haven't run off with some other person is exactly the problem that Jesus had with the Pharisees. That you don't see yourself in this. That's a dangerous place to be. That's for someone else who went off and found someone else. It's not for me. As we've been saying all series, as Christians, we give up the right to use good and bad categories. Like, I'm good, they're bad. The Pharisees, we uphold the law. We are the faithful. And Jesus comes along and says, there is one that is good, and it ain't you. We are all faithless. Every one of us, and we are all in need of the true faithful one to uphold us and make us faithful in him. That's the only thing that'll work. And he gives favor to the faithless in that. The cross, 1 John 1, 9, he bore our sins in his own body on the cross And when we believe he died for us, God transforms, or sorry, he transfers our sin to Jesus and imputes to us Jesus' righteousness. That's the only way that I can be faithful, is his imputed righteousness in me. The resurrection is God overturning the curse of death and destruction brought on by my sin Whether my sin or somebody else's or something that was done to me or something that was done to me or something that I did to somebody else, it it applies to all of that. And then the gospel infuses the power of new life into the dead tomb of a broken body and a broken relationship. It can do that. The empty tomb is the answer for a soul broken by divorce. Don't stop there. The empty tomb is also the answer for a soul for a soul or for a marriage hanging on by a thread. And yes, don't stop there. The empty tomb is the answer for a marriage that is totally and completely flourishing. Still the answer. It's all the power of the resurrection. And so for those of you holding on to resentment or anger towards a spouse, be an ex-spouse, a parent, for what they did 5, 10, 20, 30 years ago, I want you to hear this, as Christians, a part of being faithful, a part of being faithful is recognizing the power of the gospel that gets to benefit even them. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that salvation even involves deliverance from the shame of whatever it is they have done. One of my favorite quotes by um, J.D. Greer, he says, fairness ended in the Garden of Eden. Jesus took it away. When he came, may the Lord protect our marriages. may He heal ones that are on the brink because I don't know all your stories. I know many of them. May he heal ones that are on the brink. May, may his power move mightily in the one that is considering getting out. May he be glorified through our marriages and in our homes. and may his covenant to his people. That's what we see here May his covenant to his people be seen in and through our covenant keeping towards one another. you pray with me? Father, we pray um, Colossians chapter 3. This is our prayer. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, and dearly and deeply loved by you. Would you fill our hearts and fill our marriages with your compassion when we are compassionless with your kindness when we have no kindness within us, with your humility, when we are full of pride, with your gentleness, when we are not gentle and with your patience when we are impatient. We thank you for giving even the faithless your favor. We pray for healing in marriages that are on the brink. We pray for your resurrection power to move mightily in marriages throughout this whole community. Many of us know stories of men and women even now who are hurting. Would you bring healing. We are grateful and we believe that you are able. And we are grateful for that. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen, amen, and amen.